All right, so kids are dismissed if they're part of kids' ministry is this morning. All right, well, hopefully if you um, came in here this morning, you're able to get a bulletin, and I would invite you to take your bulletin, and inside that bulletin, there's a little insert. Um, if you could just take that out, if you don't have it, that's okay. Um, we are kind of starting a new series here uh, that will carry us throughout much of the fall, and it's essentially um, walking through the DNA of Parkview. Um, I admit and confess that going to church for some of us can be something that is just a routine. It's just something that we do. That's, there's something really good about that, but there can also be some dangers, right? On Sunday mornings, you just get up and you go to church because it's what you do. It's what you've always done, and so what, what you do today, right? And as we, some of us drift through those motions, go through those motions, we can find ourselves, if we're not careful, um, drifting away from what it is fundamentally that we are supposed to be doing as a church. And so our hope is that we are faithful to what God has called us to be and to what God has told us to do. Um, and so we're going to use this series to help kind of introduce and encircle us around kind of the fundamentals of who we are as a church. What does it mean to be a part of Parkview? Now, there are a, a number of significant shifts that our church, if you've been around Parkview much, um, if you haven't, that's okay. Um, I'll share just a few of them this morning. Some shifts that we have gone through as a church in the last couple of years that really as a leadership have caused us to step back and say, okay, well, who are we as a church? What is Parkview Church? One significant shift is the change in leadership, right? Last year or last week, uh, Pastor Gilmore was here. He's a man who's, who's faithfully led this church for the past 28 years. And a couple years ago, he passed that baton on to Doug Schillinger through succession. And so Jeff is still around serving. He preached here last week. He's still serving the church and leading in different varieties. But really, Doug Schillinger is, is the senior pastor of the church, right? So that's one shift that our church has experienced. And the other, I'd say one that many of us can probably relate to the most is the transition to going from Parkview being one church that meets in one location to have it being one church that now meets in three locations, right? Two years ago, a little less than two years ago, we launched the East Campus. We launched this congregation. And for us, we decided, hey, it was best for us to reach our community to go into multiple locations that can serve, contextualize what we are doing. We feel that, we feel that live and uh, live preaching is something that's important. And so we have campus pastor who, who leads us in that from one Sunday. We still work together as one church. And so you've noticed perhaps that our sermon series is, are all linked, right? There's lots of different things of what it, it means for us to be one church in three locations. Just a couple of months ago, we launched our third location, North Campus, right? It wasn't so much that we birthed a congregation, more like we adopted one into the family, right? And we call them now North Campus, right? So that's another significant shift for our church. Again, another reason for us to pull back and say, who are we as a church? What is the DNA that makes up Parkview? A couple of days ago, um, me and my wife were with our little child, Noel, little girl, about a year, a little over a year and a half, going on two years here shortly, and she's figuring out language. And so it's always fun, kind of scary, when, some, when you are able to understand some of the words that she's saying, okay? And we were sitting there, and I, I, I had a, I don't know if it was chocolate or a piece of candy or whatever it was, and, and she looked over, and she said really loudly and very clearly, candy, right? Candy. 
And my wife looked at me and she said, well, the paternity test just came back. She's clearly your daughter, all right? And it's, it's very true, right? In family, we pass these traits to each other, and, and we have similarities, things that are in common, that because we are a family, you just can't deny, right? And so as we consider the DNA specifically of our church, the idea is that you should be able to go into any campus, North Campus, East Campus, Central Campus, and there are certain things that will be in place that are non-negotiables, essentials, fundamentals to what it means to be a church. Now, of course, within in each campus... There is a degree of freedom. There is the ability to contextualize what we are doing for the, the unique needs and culture around each location. North Liberty, specifically where the North Campus is located, is going to be a little different than the neighborhood around us, right? So the way that we reach that neighborhood, there's going to be some freedom to do what's best to reach that neighborhood. Okay, so if you have your thing out, first thing I will point out is just the mission of our church. Um, that's the first thing that, that really is different. Our mission is that we, are pursue, that we pursue Jesus together in everyday life. That's the mission. That's what we are trying to accomplish. Now, if you think about trying to do that, reach, make disciples that pursue Jesus throughout everyday life in our community, there is, that is no small challenge. If you think of Iowa City and just the tremendous challenge to reach this community, one of the least church, one of the least biblically-minded communities in the entire nation, right? It is no small thing to say, we want to take this message, the message of hope, the gospel message, and reach people, many of whom are hostile to this very message, right? It is no small challenge. So we want to make sure that our approach, the way that we make disciples, the way that we reach the lost in our community is fine-tuned, Right? And so leadership has spent the last number of months going through and really developing our strategy. How do we make disciples in our community? And on your sheet, you will see kind of two different categories. The first is our plan, and the second essentially is our traits. And if you look at the plan, basically that's the how. How do we make disciples? And you can summarize the how in three words, gather, grow, and go. Well, the first way that we make disciples, the first how is we gather to worship something that's fundamental to our church. We will have weekly worship gatherings. Another thing that's fundamental is that we will grow in Christ-likeness. We will develop and we will implement a strategy throughout this church within which we encourage one another to grow in the image and likeness of Christ. And the last thing is that we will go, that we will go on mission, right? And, and the next thing that you see underneath that is the traits, the what. And this is, this is essentially, as you think of a disciple that we produce at our church, you should be able to see these traits, like Noelle and eating candy, right? It shows evidence, a sign that she is my child, all right? Likewise, and if you think of a disciple that comes out of Parkview, these are the five things we want to see evident in their life, that they enjoy God's presence, that they live God's story, that they love God's people, that they share God's gift, and that they serve God's world. So just in a nutshell, that's our plan. That's our plan. In the next couple of months, we're going to spend some time together as a family walking through specifically what God has called us to. And, and kind of the passage that we want to use that is really kind of the launch pad for this is found in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. What we want to make sure that we're doing is being faithful. And probably the best way to think through how to make disciples is to look at the master disciple maker, Jesus himself. What was his approach? What was his strategy, right? We're not trying to be slick and creative and innovative, all right? We're trying to be faithful. As a church, that's our goal is to be faithful. And so in Mark 13, 15, I could just read these, and you'll probably hear these a lot from one week to the next. 
And he went up to the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And, and right there you see in those two verses, in those three verses, you see what God has called us to be as a church. That we would come to him, that we would gather in worship, that we would be with him, that we would grow in his image and likeness, and that we too would be sent out on mission, just like Jesus did with his disciples. So for the first three weeks, we're going to be looking specifically at the first part of this new plan, and that is um, that we gather, grow, and go. So my task this morning, all of that was by means of, by way of introduction, is to walk through what does it mean as a church, specifically speaking, Parkview East Campus Church, to gather to worship. What does that mean? I would invite you to open up your Bibles to John chapter 4, 23 and 24. And this message may be a little different than what I'm used to doing from one week to the next. My preference is to take one passage of Scripture and to exegete it, to exposit, to walk through the passage and get to what is the heart of that passage. Verse by verse, line by line, word by word. What did it mean to the original audience? What light does Jesus shine on it? And what does it therefore mean to us? That's how I would prefer to do every message. Hopefully you've noticed that. This one's a little different. John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24 this morning are going to kind of serve as the framework um, by which um, I'm going to teach from. Okay, I'm not going to exposit and exegete the whole passage, um, but it is going to be really helpful for us. And so I'll go ahead and read it. In fact, is there somebody that would like to read it for us? Anybody have an ESV that would like to just stand up and read John chapter 4, verse 23 and 24? ESV, anybody got an ESV? Want to read it? Anybody? Uh, well, okay. Helene, you want to do it? Thank you. Let me pray for us. Father God, Lord, we thank you um, for the opportunity, just the, the privilege that we get to meet together to worship you. Father, thank you that we have certain freedoms in this country that allow us to do that. And we don't take those lightly, Father. Um, we, we invite your presence into this space now, Father, into our hearts, Lord. And we pray that just as we walk through an understanding of what it means to worship as your people, Lord, I pray that you would guide us in all truth. Lord, we pray that you would take the words that were just read now, Father, that you would write them on our hearts, Lord, and you would allow us um, to follow and, and be obedient to them, Lord. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. If you are familiar, maybe you're not, but if you're familiar with this passage of Scripture, John chapter 4, you would know that in John chapter 3 and in John chapter 4, there are two interactions that couldn't really be with two different people that couldn't be more, couldn't be further apart. But at the same time, they're very, very similar. In John chapter 3, we know that Jesus has an interaction with a man by the name of Nicodemus. He, he is a Pharisee. He's a religious leader of the day. 
right? He's somebody who thinks he's maybe got it in with God. And then in John chapter 4 specifically, where these verses, where we read these verses 23 and 24, Jesus has an interaction with somebody who's very different, comes from a totally different place in the, in the social continuum than Nicodemus does. And it's, it's the woman at the well, the, the Samaritan woman. Perhaps you're familiar with the story. It's an awesome story in John chapter 4, but essentially Jesus is, finds himself alone at the well. The middle of day, not the time that you would ideally be going there to draw water. And he's there alone, and eventually a Samaritan woman arrives um, trying to avoid the crowd. So already you know that, that she, she has maybe something to hide. She doesn't want to talk to all the other ladies that might be there, right? But instead she finds Jesus. And, and Jesus does something that's really unusual when he interacts with her. He breaks through all the cultural and gender expectations and norms of the day, and he asks her, a Samaritan woman, to give him, a Jewish man, a drink from the well. Just completely shatters all of the cultural expectations. Jesus, this woman is shocked that Jesus, a Jew, would ask her, a Samaritan, for a drink and begins to converse with her. Jesus uses this conversation without going into it in too, uh, too deep, inch by inch, to get closer to what's at the very center of who she is and what she needs as a person. And right when it starts to get a little too close for her to be comfortable, right, he gets into some of the nitty-gritties of her life, some of the sin issues that, that she has historically struggled with. Um, this woman, in, in a very wide shift that none of us would try to do, shifts the conversation to a matter of theology and doctrine and it was some bigger issues. Now, you're getting too close, Jesus. Back that train up. Let's talk about some, some theological issues right now. You don't get, want to get too close to my heart, right? Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. This is the shift. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Right? She's getting into a bigger conversation. It's not just a debate between uh, her and him. It's a debate between the Samaritans and the Jews. Well, Jesus responds in verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. And then verse 23. But the hour is coming and it is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus' point is very, very simple. True worship is no longer bound by localized place or external form. He shifts not just the, debate, the, the conversation, but he shifts the complete categories by which this woman, woman is talking. When she, she was, the woman, she thought the debate was centered on location, the geographic location. Notice the shift. Mountains, Jerusalem is what she was talking about. And Jesus replaces even the categories of location with a new category. Spirit replaces mountain. Truth replaces Jerusalem. With the arrival of Jesus and the work that he will do, namely the crucifixion, the resurrection, and his exaltation, the mountain and the city are no longer essential to true worship. What is essential to true worship is spirit and truth. It's interesting because here what Jesus is saying is that God seeks. God seeks. He wants. Just that phrase 
should send your mind. And God, the creator of the universe, is seeking something. He, he wants something. There's something out there that he is seeking. And Jesus tells us what he's seeking is true, authentic worship. You could go from this passage of Scripture and you could flip all around the New Te Old Testament into the New Testament and what you will find is that God is a God who's on a mission. It's part of the reason why it makes so much sense for us to be a people who are on a mission, seeking lost people, saving, winning them to Jesus because that's what God is doing throughout redemptive history. He's on a mission to gather his people, true, authentic worshipers, spirit and truth. First spirit. True worship happens, we know, by the spirit, through the spirit, and in our spirit. God is spirit, and our worship is the result of his spirit acting on us. Our, our worship is then carried along by the Holy Spirit, and it takes place within our spirit. It is not external that matters most but it's the spiritual, the internal that God is concerned with. Worship is to happen in spirit and truth. True, authentic worship is the result of true views of God. Thinking rightly about who God is, what he has done. Proper understanding. If you were to flip on through the book of John, you would see that actually spirit and truth, they're not two different things. It's actually one thing. If you were to go back to the story of Nicodemus in chapter 3, you would see his conversation. Jesus brings both of those things to the surface. Spirit. What does it mean to be born again? It's a spiritual thing. Thinking rightly in truth is also a thing that he brings to the surface in his interaction with Nicodemus. The point is these two things, spirit and truth, if you were to go to John 14, 15, and 16, they converge on the person of Jesus. That's why when we talk about worshiping, being faithful in our worship, it centers around Jesus Christ. When we would describe what our worship is here at Parkview East, we would say it is Christ-centered worship. That's what we're, we're running after, worship that can be categorized as being done in spirit and in truth. And that's first and foremost, as we launch into this conversation of what it means to be Parkview Church, again, our hope is not to be slick. Our hope is not to be super creative and super relevant or contextualized. Our hope as a church is primarily to be faithful, Right? It's interesting, you know, we just had our, our uh, Faith Academy had a staff retreat, and if you were to think of just the idea, just the topic of education and how the kind of the winds shift every couple of years, and there's all sorts of new theories and approaches and pedagogies, and from, it just changes constantly, right? And if we're not careful, that same sort of approach mentality can find its way into the church, and that's not okay, right? We have God's book, we have his word, and our desire is to be faithful to it. All right? So what I'm going to do this morning, and, and this is, normally when I preach, I try to give you three points. Not today, okay? I'm going to give you ten. Now, check it out, that, those ten points are not hopefully 
hopefully not reflective of how much longer this message will be. That's not my hope, okay? There is a great deal that I could say about the topic of worship. We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks. My, my hope is to give you some, some parameters by which we try to, to, to worship together on Sunday mornings and then give you specifically some things that you can do, okay? So I'm going to give you five propositional statements, just things that help frame how we worship, and then I'm going to give you five challenges specifically for you to help make Sunday mornings significant, meaningful, and what they're supposed to be for you, okay? So, five propositions, and this is not, again, I'm not going to go into each of these in depth. Depending on time, I may just say them and move on, but if, just, you know, imagine me kind of opening up a door, pointing out a couple of things, and then we'll go on to the next door. Fling it open, invite you to come in, point out a couple of things, and then we'll move on, okay? So don't be scared by 10, but I'm going to give you 10. First thing is, how we worship matters to God. How we worship matters to God. There is, even from this, these verses 23 and 24, we can see that there is a proper way to worship. There's a right way, and there are many, many wrong ways to worship. It matters. God cares how you and how I approach him on Sunday mornings. He does, okay? It matters to him. He is seeking, in John chapter 4, true worshipers, this is a desire of him throughout the Bible. From, ju- from the judgment that comes on Israel for worshiping the golden calf to the specific instructions for co- the construction of the tabernacle and the temple. From the institution of the sacrificial system in the Old, system, in the Old uh, Testament to concerns in the New Testament for how Christians were to behave and not behave when they took part in the Lord's Supper. Real specific directions. Uh, from the first commandment that we should have no other gods, the one true God, to the, the whole book of Malachi, to Romans chapter 12, throughout the book of Hebrews, how do you take the Old Testament, how does Jesus himself fulfill the Old Testament um, worship? God cares how we worship. He cares how you worship, how you approach him. It's evident throughout scripture. It's completely clear. God cares how we worship. And again, one of the dangers we have is that, that we try to just follow the wind in whichever way it blows. And so because God cares, like you can see how when people approach him wrongly, like judgment and bad things happen throughout the Bible, okay? So it's not something we take lightly. It's not something that's just thrown out there willy-nilly and you have some ideas and I have some ideas and, well, let's find something that works for everybody. That's not how we do it, right? He prescribes us how we are to approach him. The second thing is that worship is fundamentally about God, the truth is, we've talked about this the summer when we went through uh, Psalm 63. The truth is, we are all worshipers. We are all worshipers. In uh, Dostoevsky, in his book, Brothers Karamazov, so long as man remains free, he strives for nothing so incessantly and so painfully as to find someone, something to worship. The truth is, we are all worshipers. What unites us as a people is that when we gather Sunday mornings, the object of what we worship, who we worship, is God, right? But many people out there who don't profess to be followers of Jesus and who do not ascribe to worship God, they worship something else, right? It may be a team, a football team, a baseball team. It could be money. It could be sex. It could be a spouse. It could be a career. It could be their identity. It could be themselves. The truth is we are all worshipers. Augustine says, for you have made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. And so the idea is that because we're all worshipers, 
because God has tucked eternity in each one of our hearts until we find that he should be the object, the object of our worship, we, Augustine says, become restless, striving for the next thing to worship that satisfies and meets our needs. We're all worshipers. It's buried deep down inside of who you and I am fundamentally as a person. It's a trick here because we are all worshipers. We are supposed to worship God. But oftentimes what can happen within the church is we can take, this may sound weird, so just hang with me. We can take God from being the center of our worship and we can replace it with worship itself if we're not careful. So we can be, if we're not careful, people who worship, worship. Okay? Sounds kind of weird, but in our day when the selfie is like what everybody does, imagine going to the Grand Canyon and you're like you could take your cell phone and you could take a picture of the Grand Canyon or you could take your cell phone and take a, cell phone, a picture of yourself like looking at the Grand Canyon, right? There's, there's a difference. One is an admirer of the Grand Canyon or maybe the sunset, right? Maybe the sunrise. I love to see sunrises and I could admire the sunrise or I could admire myself admiring the sunrise, there's a distinction there, and it's important, okay? It's important. God is supposed to be the center and the object of our worship, not worship itself, all right? It's super helpful if you think about it. It's some homework for you. Worshiping in spirit and truth is demanded by God's own nature. God is spirit. God is truth, and our worship, likewise, should reflect his Character And it's part of the way by which, we'll get into it next week, by which we grow into his character. It's even by the, the things that we do here on Sunday morning, they should reflect who he is, right? And a big thing that's helpful here, worship is about God. And I'm going to say this, and for some of you might be stepping on some toes, but I just want to remind you, it's not primarily about you, okay? If worship is about God. Now, this is probably a message that most people here at East don't need to hear because a lot of you that are sitting in folding chairs like have died to the fact that Sunday morning exists primarily for you, all right? But it's something that's good for us to be reminded of, that, that as we come together on Sundays, there's, there's different ways that we use art, that we use music, that we aesthetically like do or don't decorate this place, right? And for some of you, you may think, well, this is the particular, there's a particular style that I prefer. And there's a particular type of music that I prefer. There's a, there's a particular type of preaching that I prefer. And if we're not careful, what we can do is we can take ourselves and place ourselves and our preferences at the heart of Sunday mornings and not God himself. And we don't want to do that, right? To some degree. This place should be a place that every single one of us feels comfortable walking in and worshiping on Sunday morning. To some degree, we should feel comfortable here. But at the same time, every one of us, I think if we're doing it right, should also feel uncomfortable here. And that's okay, right? Maybe the songs that we sing or the way that they're sung is not our preference. And you know what? It's not about you. It's not, all right? And it's a hard pill for some of us to swallow. It, it is. But, but it's the truth. It's about God. Again, we're trying to be faithful to who he is, what he called us to be. That's what you should be most concerned with. All right? It's not about us. It's about God. Next one. Worship involves our whole life. We talked a lot about this in Psalm 63, so I'll just quickly read. 
Romans 12, 1, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, we don't offer animals as sacrifices, but our very selves, the Bible says. What, what they do in the New Testament is they take the words that God used to describe how worship should be, and they're directly applied to the whole lives of believers, okay? The Christian's whole life is an act of sacrificial service to God. Hebrews 13, 15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, the fruit of our lips. Boldly confessing the gospel in public is a form of worship. Speaking words of truth in love to one another is a form of worship. How we, can, how we can praise him with the fruit of our lips. Bringing every word we say under his dominion. Expressing thanksgiving for all that he is and all that he has done. Asking for all that we need. Expressing our need. Lord, I need you. Right? This is a sacrifice, a praise to him that we give that rattles off out of our tongue. It's not simply something that we do at church on Sunday mornings. It should permeate every avenue, the way we work, the way we love, the way we live, the way we play, the way we rest. All of those things should be permeated by who God is and what he has done and are a form of sacrifice and worship to him, all right? They should be consistent. There's a distinction. Well, I shouldn't say there shouldn't be a distinction between private and public. How, how it looks and how you do it should be different, but the heart and the essence of it should not be different, right? A couple years ago, I saw this video. It was super convicting. It was called, I think it was called James 1. I don't totally remember. It was just a YouTube clip, and it was maybe put out by Desiring God. And, and what it had was this, this, this first he didn't quite figure out what was going on, but it had this dad waking up. And what was really a trip for me in this video was that the guy, the dad, looked exactly like me. Like, exactly like me. I was like, ah, it's terrifying, right? But the dad woke up, and, and he went from one bed to the next bed, waking kids up. Get out of bed. And you, you didn't hear anything he was saying, but he was mad. He was angry. He was waking them up, pulling the sheets off of them, getting them going. And the kids were, like, you know, flopping out of bed, like, ugh, you know. And it was just a terrible sort of routine. It was like, oh, that's disgusting. There was part of me that was like, ooh, you know, also painful because, like, I have done that before. You know, I've been mean in the morning. I've, get out of bed. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Maybe more than I should. But... I was, as I watched it, you, you began to see that what was happening is they're all getting dressed. And then, like, one of the last scenes is them actually, like, getting out of the car and walking into church on a Sunday morning. You're like, ooh, that hurts, right? That this horrible routine, this horrible thing happened, just being mean and short and, and everything. And then they walk into church, and they put on these huge smiles. How are you doing, brother? Good to see you, deacon. How's it going, sis? Right? And nobody would have known, like, what just happened an hour ago. There was a duplicity. There was an inconsistency with how they publicly worshipped and privately what happened in their lives. And that's a problem. That's, that's a problem. Okay? We want to be consistent in our private and in our public worship. All, because all of life is worship. Right? Fourth observation or proposition is that worship is hearing and responding to God's word. Worship is not primarily the aesthetic or the artistic sort of experience that you have when you come here on a Sunday morning. This may seem obvious that it's so important for us to remember. When, when you think about your church, when you think about our church, if somebody says, well, what's it like going to Parkview East? And if the first thing that rattles off of your tongue is the way that we do music or the kind of clothes that we wear or the kind of seats that we sit in, I would just challenge you that that's a problem. 
okay? Because that's not what's utmost and primarily marks us as a church. What we center around and what forms and guides us and directs us in how we worship together is the Bible. It's the Bible. And worship is fundamentally hearing and responding to God's word, right? When we describe, to give you a definition of what worship is, it's the natural and the delightful response to who God is and what God has done. When we go throughout our service, God's word is what directs us, right? And it should be evident all throughout our service, okay? A little bit ago, I was, I was at a swimming pool, and I, I do some weird things sometimes when I just observe people, okay? And not like creepy things, just kind of like my mind takes me in different places, okay? So there's a swimming pool, and I was just kind of watching the kids play, and I was imagining myself. Like, it's socially a weird, I don't know if you ever thought about it, but like the swimming pool is socially a weird place to be, okay? Like, nowhere else in our culture, like, do we gather around like half naked, get in close proximity to each other, jump up and down, dive in and out, you know, splash and do things like that. It's just socially, it's kind of weird. And so what I imagine, and maybe this will help make my point, is if you imagine a swimming pool and all that goes on, a public swimming pool, and then imagine, poof, all the water's gone, but nobody stops doing what they're doing. Like, how weird would that be? Let's dig a big pit, let's get really close to each other, and let's just go like this. Right? Like, totally weird. It would be totally weird, and you would probably get the cops called on you, all right? Rightfully so, if you tried doing that with a bunch of people. It's weird, okay? Because water's not there. Instantly, water's there, and it's all good. Like, okay, please go back. We see what's happening here. They're swimming, okay? It's okay. Worship is the same, the same thing with, like, church public worship. You remove the Bible. It's like, what are you doing, right? Going into a church and they don't speak the Bible, they don't preach the Bible, they don't sing the Bible. Like, what? Is, it's not just something's missing here. It's, you guys, this is not the church. This is not worship. All right? And that's why when we sing songs, we want those songs to, to proclaim God's word. When we preach, we want to preach God's word. When we pray, guess what we want to pray? God's word. Right? Some have summed it up in the past to say that, that really worship, coming together, you read the Bible, you sing the Bible, you preach the Bible, you show the Bible, thinking of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and you live the Bible, right? That, that's what directs us, informs us, and shapes our worship service. Now, now, maybe you show up on some Sunday and the message is less than interesting. Just say, you're having a hard time, you know, staying awake, all right? Maybe that's the case. That might happen, heaven forbid, all right? I'm off my game, whatever it is. That's, if it's not interesting, that's on me. If you're not getting anything out of it, that's on you because the bulk of what I'm doing is reading the Bible, all right? And what anybody who stands behind here should be doing is reading the Bible. S same with the music. It may not be your preference. You may not like it, but you know what? You can sing God's word. You can sing God's praise, right? To the saved heart, the richness of the gospel and God's word should always surpass even the most impoverished musicians and preachers, all right? Because his word is rich, okay? 
And so it, it may be a thing like how we have, you know, I, I preach the majority of the sermons here, but there are rotating, you know, there are other times that other people step in. And, and I've been guilty of this at other churches too, where you see who's preaching and you think, eh, you know, maybe I'm not going to, I don't connect so well with that guy or, or whatever. The truth is, that's okay, right? Don't not come to Sunday worship because you don't connect well with the guy who's communicating or, or you don't like exactly who's leading music, all right? Just a little something to make you think about. Last propositional statement. Our worship should edify the entire congregation. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Paul is sorting through all sorts of difficult situations at the church of Corinth. And the ruler he keeps the ruler that he keeps holding up to measure these situations is, will this edify the entire congregation? Will they be built up and strengthened by these gifts by these tongues, by these different things. The ruler that is held to measure whether or not we do it on Sunday morning is will it be beneficial and it edify one another. Love aims not only at making much of God, but also entails making much of God by building each other up. The first and the second greatest commandment, you take the Ten Commandments, the first five and the second five, and you see that these things exist well. When we love God well, we are also loving each other well. All right? Hebrews 10.25, we should be encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, okay? That we should gather together to encourage one another, okay? That's why it's important to be here on Sunday mornings and not necessarily just podcast or something like that because it's hard to encourage one another. We'll get more into that. So those are five propositional statements. You can write those down, take them to the bank, hold me accountable, whatever you want to do. Now five challenges, okay? These are going to be a little more practical in nature. Uh, first challenge is be active. Be active. Worship is something that you do, not something that you watch. Okay? I, you know, before I got married, used to love to go to concerts. Right? And when you go to concerts, I'm not like the guy down there in the mosh pit, usually that type of thing or wherever, you know, everybody's dancing. I'd usually get to the back and I want to really enjoy a good show. So I'd get kind of far back and my brother's the same way and we would go to concerts all the time and we would kind of get back and we would sit and we would watch. Okay, we wouldn't be down there dancing and all that type of stuff, whatever it is. We would watch. And I think that, that oftentimes we approach Sunday morning worship kind of with the same mentality, that we come and we watch. It's like a concert hall for some of us. But when you listen to what worship is like, what just Sunday morning, the gathering, should be like in the New Testament, it is anything but a concert hall. It's more like a banquet hall, right? Where we lay out tables and you bring food and you set it on there and then you go through and you, you eat and you eat and you eat. You serve and you eat and you serve and you eat. You are a contributor, not primarily a consumer. And Sunday mornings, it's the same way. It should be a banquet hall in here. We should be active. Some Sundays you might have to be more active, like if I'm not preaching really well, to like work to get out the God's word, right? You may need to be a little more active. But we all bring something here on Sunday mornings. And, and oftentimes, every other sphere in our life, we see ourselves primarily as consumers, right? We go into stores. You cater to my preferences. Either I do or I don't like what's happening here. And then I leave. It's about the consumer is always happy. Church is different. Right? You are a contributor, every single one of you, even if it's just by showing up and encouraging one another. Right? And the truth is, specifically where this is concerned, I just got an email from Craig this morning, and Craig's been tracking our attendance. And he's noticed a fall off on weeks where we don't have kids' ministry. 
as opposed to the weeks that we do have kids ministry. So more people show up on weeks that we have kids ministry. If you're new here, we do it every other week, okay? So another way that you could be active and really help our congregation is consider serving once a month, whatever it is, in children's ministry, right? Because just by having, be able to do that more frequently, more people come, all right? So that's another way that you can be active. Learn, encourage, sing, cry, bring an offering, confess sin. This is an activity that you should be doing when you worship. We should be active. Second thing I'll say is that you should be present, all right? Throughout the New Testament, it's actually a, a punishable offense to be a regular non-attender at a church. I don't know if you knew that or not, but it is. We don't, do, we don't practice that a whole lot. Like, we don't kick people out for not being here, okay? I'm not saying that we're going to start, but I'm just saying, listen, attendance is important. It is important. Be present. There's two ways you can be present. One is like physically your butt can be in a chair. And secondly, like mentally, your mind can be locked in and engaged to what's happening. Okay? For some of you, that's more of a challenge than for others. And that's okay. Right? We try to keep things moving. But be present. You should be here. Listen, guys. When we gather, God is here. If you were to go through the New Testament and look at the different gatherings when people got together and worshipped, like they expected to experience the living God. The awesome thing is that it's no different for us. But oftentimes if you walk into a church, peek through the doors, it'll look like there's nothing living in there, right? On Sunday mornings, you should come with the expectation of communing with the eternal, triune, living God. That's a big deal. It's an awesome privilege to do it with the people that you love, your brothers and your sisters, your family, to gather and experience God, to meet with him. That is no small thing. It should be a priority. All right, I'm probably preaching to the choir, but like you should miss when you're not here. You should miss not seeing people around you, not singing out and having people stare at you like you're weird. You should, you should miss when you're not here. All right? Be present. The third thing I'll say is that you should be prepared. You should be prepared. If you think about maybe you're, you're working or before, you know, maybe if you were in school, if you had a, like a significant event happening, let's say the day before, maybe it was a test, usually the night before you would be studying, right? Um, or if you have an interview or an important project that you have to present at work the next day, usually the, day be the night before, like you're preparing for that presentation, for that whatever it is, right? Or, or maybe like if you date or when you dated, if there was somebody else that, that you got to meet Right? Generally, it would be a good practice to like glance in the mirror before you met with them right? and to think, how does my hair look? How does my breast smell? Are there, is there cheese on my teeth? That type of thing. Okay? Like you prepare for that meeting. Okay? And I just want to ask you, you don't have to raise hands or answer, do you prepare for Sunday morning? Like if those things are important enough to prepare for, how much more should meeting with God be deserving of some preparation. As a church, we try to practically do that by saying, hey, this is the topic. Sometimes you'll get the message name. You'll get the scripture that we're reading. A lot of times we'll provide little booklets that can help you read throughout the week. And I'm not saying you have to do those things. I'm saying that we try to encourage you to prepare for what's happening Sunday morning. Okay? Do you prepare for entering into this place 
What does Saturday night look like? What does the drive here look like? Is there any thought about what you're doing in advance? I would contend that there should be. Next thing I'll say, number four, is be welcoming when we're here. Our worship, both corporate and individual, should attract those who do not know Jesus, right? Both our corporate and our personal worship should attract those who do not know Jesus. Now, there are some church models that take liberty with this, and they have what's called a seeker-friendly service. And you would sometimes, if you went to some of those churches, not know that it was a church because they would play, like, secular music. They would maybe teach real topical, um, like, life. What do you call it when you're saying uh, improve your life? Uh, Self-help. There it is. Like, self-help. Like, we want you to be a good person. Okay, and that's good, but you can go to Barnes and Noble and look in the self-help section if you want to be learn how to like really improve your lifestyle. Okay, we aren't trying to be a seeker-sensitive service in the sense that everything that we do here is thought about like how do we draw people in. Okay, we're not advocating that, but we do suggest seeker-friendly lives. We should be people that live our lives that we are the aroma of Christ. Okay. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We want to be that aroma to Christ as we live our lives. Keep your conduct in 1 Peter among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. If we are faithful in our witness, both public and private, in accordance with Scripture, this will be one of the best pictures of the gospel that we can give. If we're really being faithful to how God wants us to worship him on Sunday mornings, bringing people here should be an awesome way to to show the gospel to them, right? We want to be a place that's welcoming. When we see somebody that we don't know, even if it's awkward and hard for us to introduce ourselves and to meet them, we want to welcome them here. We don't want to just lay it on them, right? We want to give them some space, but at the same time, we should go out of our way to make anybody, regardless of what they look like, regardless of what they're wearing, regardless of how they speak, regardless of how they smell, all of those things, all of those external things, we want to welcome folks here, all right? And I think in order to be faithful to who God has called us to be, we should make sure that we are a welcoming people. And the last thing I will say, number five, is be hopeful. Be hopeful. If you are a true worshiper of Jesus, the truth, folks, why much of this matters is because public worship is your future. If you are a Christian, if you sit here this morning, you are bought by the blood of the Lamb, Worship is your future. What we do here on Sunday mornings, it's like a training ground for where we will spend eternity. Every Sunday, this is preparation. It should give us a taste, a glimpse. It's like we peel back the curtain and we see what eternity is like. In Revelation 21, John writes of this new heaven and the new earth And listen to what he says in verse 6. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. John points out that this city is a perfect cube. Not unusual to think of towns like as a square, the town square, but this is a different kind of a cube. Can you think of what else in the Old Testament had the shape of a cube? It was the Holy of Holies. 
the place that God's special presence dwelt, the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of the temple. You can look at 1 Kings chapter 6. The difference is with this, the future, the new heaven, the new earth, with the Holy of Holies in this, is that with the Holy of Holies, only one person had access to enter into the presence of God one time a year and had to do it a very particular way. What's different about this cube is that every single one of us for eternity will be worshiping in his presence. That's what we are designed for, eternity. He tucked it in our hearts. Sunday mornings is preparation for that. It, it should be. It shouldn't be a drag, right? When we think later on about how we are to, to go on mission, the whole reason why we go on mission is because, not because mission lasts forever, but because worship does. And that's why he sends us, because you know what? He's seeking, right? John chapter 4 at the beginning, he's seeking true worshipers who worship him, who approach him in spirit and in truth. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for um, the opportunity to meet. And Lord, again, what a privilege it is. Lord, that you have given us all we need to do to, um, sometimes I, th I feel that we overthink it. Um, Lord, but you, you've shown us what we need to do. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your word, Lord. And I pray that you would help us as a church to continue to keep you and your word central to what we do when we meet on Sunday mornings. I pray you'd help your people, your saints, be an encouragement to one another, that we would welcome outsiders well, Father, and that we would have one of the coolest families around. Not because we may look cool or dress cool or sing cool or whatever it is, Lord, but because we have a love that can't be explained. And that when people come in here, they see a love that we have for you and a love that we share with each other, Father. And, and I pray that you would help us to prioritize that, Lord, and that, and that people would desire to be a part of, of this body because of that, Father. We love you, and we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.